Donatists are like, but Christians are always persecuted. And that's how you know they're real Christians because they don't ever betray the faith. They never compromise. And this is why it's relevant to us today because our background, independent fundamental Baptist, separatism and purity is the number one concern. Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, a Baptist perspective on history, culture, and theology. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyon. And today's topic is the Donatist controversy and separatism. <laughs> always coming up in the news. Like you're always yeah. hearing about the Donatist and separatism. Uh, it's, it's a really old controversy, but separatism never seems to go away. Before we get to the history part, we are going to have some fun by reading the reviews. So do you actually have the reviews accessible? Yes, I do have the, the reviews up. Okay, do you want to read them? Yeah, um, you want to do the, the two late, the two most So recent we're going to read the last two reviews. All right. So you read the last two reviews. One's five star, one's one star. We can kind of balance them out. Yeah, okay. All right, sorry. I'll do uh, the oldest one uh, was from Disappointed Logician. Uh, the title was Culturally Approved, Biblically Weak. And the comment was twisting the Bible to fit modern cultural theology. I warned you about that, Mark, but you yeah, wouldn't yeah. stop. Uh, I'm he, guessing he gave us a one star. It was review. a one star review. Yes. Uh, disappointed logician. Um, is that kind of like a disappointed magician? <laughs> yes. Yes. Very yeah. similar. <laughs> There's dozens of us. Um, <laughs> Do logicians have the same, like we demand to be taken seriously sign? All of these yeah, for our listeners, if you're not catching the Arrested Development references, you're about to be introduced to a new show. That's amazing. <laughs> twisting scripture to fit modern standards. That they said uh, modern cult- twisting the Bible to fit modern cultures theology. I mean, There's that no could be true. So. We could be doing that. Everyone's influenced by culture. It's very. It's a very uncharitable take. It's assuming like when you say twisting, you kind of mean you're doing it intentionally. There's Maybe not though. Some, uh, I think yeah, anyway, people can go back and listen to that episode. That was the women preachers episode. I believe. Let me, the one let me where I specifically, the, use, yeah. The one where I specifically use historical examples to back yes, up our argument to that show that was, we're not. <laughs> that, that review was posted the day after the women preachers yeah. episode came out. In other words, the historical examples were to show that we're not making it up to meet yeah. the feminist agenda. Yeah. Oh, well, um, then go look at the Bible passages we quoted and make their own decision. Uh, okay, let's, what's the next one? Yeah, the, the more recent one, five stars, was uh, titled A Great Challenge. Love the church history and it's handled well, which has challenged me to look at my own personal experiences through a different lens. I've read some reviews that don't like to have the status quo question. I say digest the ideas, research the stated facts to see if there is truth, and so it will either change or affirm your own understanding. Keep up the great work. Who's that? What's his name? Uh, Exacto83. Well, he's obviously right. (laughs) Yes, of course. You know what? It's funny. They both kind of said the same thing, didn't they? That um, about like the status quo or one says we're challenging the status quo and the other one says we're conforming to the status quo. So I guess it's a matter of perspective. It's true from a certain point of view. I, I edited out a sentence or two for brevity. He also said that either scenario is better than most Bible history classes I took in Fundy College, which consisted <laughs> of pushing the narrative that supports the institution. So, um, I haven't been in every history class in, in fundamental colleges, 
but I've never heard a contrary statement from a student who's been in them. So I think it's probably true. Yeah. So we're either challenging the status quo or conforming to it. Like, uh, I don't know. Anyway, I think the last one was right. You do your own research, come to your own conclusions and be aware that everyone's pressured to conform in some way. Yeah. And also Except for us. You're unbiased. Also hear what's being said, not what being not what's being unsaid, or what you yes. what you perceive as being said. Yes, I was talking to a pastor who he didn't give us a. I don't, actually, I don't, maybe he was the one who left a review, but he did say that he would have left a one star review. And apparently, at the end of the episode, I wasn't clear. I, I conflated pastor and preacher together, mm. and so he felt like that was confusing the issue. And I was like, well, I wasn't talking about pastors, and I said that at the beginning, so. What are you going to do? All right, let's go to something a little more interesting. We have placed top 100 on chartable podcast charts in the history category. For USA. For USA. (laughs) Um, I don't know how specific that is. That might be like top salesman in a small regional paper sales company. So I don't know how much how big Chartable is, like how many podcasts it takes account of. I have no but idea. I mean, looking at the top ten, yeah, looking at the top ten, they're all major uh, podcasts that I'm familiar with. So, so we're top one hundred. I can't imagine how many history podcasts are out there, but so let's see who we're beating and who's beating us. So we're ninety four in ninety three place, beating us by one place is A Few Bad Apples, which is a podcast about spotlights cases of police brutality that occurred in America throughout the decades. Well, I can't believe they're only beating us by one. (laughs) (laughs) A podcast about Baptist history and culture versus a podcast about police brutality. They're only beating us by one place. (laughs) But we are beating, in place 95, Bigfoot for Breakfast. Which yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with ourselves for beating that. I mean, I, which would you rather listen to, Bigfoot for Breakfast or History and Hope? If you didn't know anything about either of them, Bigfoot for Breakfast, just to see if Bigfoot is invited to breakfast or if Bigfoot, Bigfoot is on the menu for breakfast. Either way, interesting. It's, it's either like conspiracy theory or Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah. Uh, a research-based entertainment podcast. It's a conspiracy. Uh, Conspiracy podcast. Well, sometimes ours is a conspiracy podcast, too. Yeah, just about different things. Anyway, rate, review, and subscribe to get us further up on the list so that we can beat a few bad apples and take on number 91, Queer Serial, American LGBTQ Plus History. That'll be a challenge. All right. Um, on to the topic of the day. The Donatus Controversy. Off the top of your head, Mark, do you know what this is about? Uh, quiz. The Donatists are vaguely familiar in the way that I'm sure I once had a flashcard to memorize for a test. <laughs> yes, that you knew that you would put them in the right category of like church history. Right. In a long time ago. But, you know, that's a starting place. You got to start somewhere. Yeah, the Donatist controversy was approximately 300 to 400 AD. So early church. What's really relevant to our listeners and Baptist history in general is that 
older older Baptist history books and uh, Trail of Blood type history books call them Baptist specifically. So, for instance, James Beller says in his A Collegiate Baptist History Workbook, which is used by many, not many, by some independent Baptist colleges. He was an independent Baptist pastor. Says that the Donatist broke with the Catholics, um, thus beginning a pattern of believers separating from apostate churches. And he, and then he says that they are two organizations were now in existence. The Catholic institution was pastored by Caecilian, the Bishop of Carthage, and the true New Testament church by Donatus. The independent church did not want to be ruled by the Catholic bishops. Thus a pattern began, a pattern of believers separating from apostate churches. This pattern continues to this day, which the argument of the whole book is that that is a Baptist church. That's the pattern. Um, he's wrong. By his own standards, he's wrong. Because do do Baptist churches have bishops? Last I checked, we don't have bishops that are. Um, yeah, so. Two new organizations existed, the Catholic institution and the New Testament church by Donatus, which was, and he even says, was put in a number of bishops, did not want the Catholic bishop. So they consecrated their own bishop. I don't know what he thinks. I do know what he thinks about Baptists, but I don't know what our listeners think about Baptists, but Baptists don't get together and consecrate their own bishops. That's just not how Baptists work. So he's wrong on that. But what's even a bigger problem is that Donatism is condemned as a heresy. It's not just a disagreement. It's a heresy. So if Baptists now, if they claim it, which um, he does and a bunch of other older Baptists do, to, to maintain the trail of blood. Like this is the link. The Catholics are corrupt, so there's always this other group that's called Baptist. If that's true, then the rest of the church, the broader Universal Church condemns us Baptists as heretics. Yeah, so it seems Assyrians. like it seems like any group pre-Reformation that goes against the Catholic Church gets brought into the Baptist fold. Like that's the that's the real standard <laughs> is that it's anti-Catholic. Yeah. Well, so here's the, so let's talk about the Donatist and one. Incidentally, they're not Baptists, but I don't think it's a serious case to be made for it. But more importantly, what we can learn from them. So the background. It is 300 AD. Diocletian is the emperor of the Roman Empire. Christians are growing quickly. So now it's been, what, 150, 200 years of growth. And they're now a political threat. So Diocletian, so we know about persecution in the early church, but it wasn't 200 years of persecution. It would be like five years or three years or a few years at a time. And then it would go away and then it'd come back and go away. So in three, um, 303, Diocletian is the emperor, declares a war on, on Christians. And so that lasts from 303 to 312. And everyone knows 312 because that's when Constantine wins the battle of um, Malvern Bridge. And sees a sign in the sky that says, in this sign conquer, which was and it was supposed to be a Christian sign. He wins the battle, 313. He gives the Edict of Milan, which 
forever makes Christianity, well, not forever, which makes Christianity the state religion, fully full freedom. So for the first time in, in church history, it's now legal to be a Christian because so that's 313. Ten years prior, Diocletian is, is persecuting Christians. So here's what he started to do. He started a propaganda campaign. So he, so some, some persecutions were like, round them up, put them in the lion's den, kill them. Diocletian started out with, try to show everybody how dumb they are and how inconsistent they are, and they won't want to do it. Uh, so one of the major things they would do was they would tear down church buildings and they would confiscate Bibles as a way to undermine the, the religion. Now it escalated. And of course it was regionals in the West and the South Africa, uh, Asia minor, different levels of persecution. It escalated into killing people, throwing them into jail, uh, sending them to the mines or copper mines that they would have to, to spend years in. So it, it was a pretty bad uh, persecution for, for years, for 10 years, really until Constantine won. So during this time, a big push by Diocletian was to confiscate the Bibles. So the context, okay, th today it's like, you know, if the, if the police said, hand me your Bible or I'm going to kill you, I think most of us would just be like, okay, here's the copy I was given. Like when I graduated from like elementary school, it's paperbacked. It's been sitting in a corner. Like take it, don't kill me. I, don't, I got five other Bibles. But back then, there was only one Bible in the town, practically, depending on how many rich people you had. The, the church only had one Bible. And so it represented not just the word of God, but the only word of God. So to hand it over to the, to the government to be destroyed was essentially saying, we don't have the Bible anymore. We're going to give up the Bible for this church. And the argument that the group made was, if every word is a word from God, and so if you change one word in the Bible, Revelation says you'll be cursed, what would happen if you gave away the whole Bible? That's the kind of the logic they were thinking. And again, there were no printing presses. So this was a hand-copied Bible that was held by the bishop in his house and brought to church and read, and no one else had their own copy. And so many bishops and people, uh, lay people, turned over their Bibles to the government. And then, of course, other ones sacrificed to the pagan gods, and then other ones didn't and were either killed or thrown in jail. So this is all pretty normal for people who know the history. Okay, then you have the aftermath. So you go to church and your pastor's gone because he wouldn't hand over the Bible and they threw him in the mines. Then you hear about the next town over and they still have their pastor because he gave up the Bible. And since it's all, there's only one church now, right? There's not like denominations or anything. The question is, wait a minute. What are we going to do about the guy who betrayed his people? And then the persecution ends. Well, before it ends, they're all getting collected into jails. So now you have two groups. You have the pastors in jail, ones who lived, who didn't betray it. And then you have the pastors outside who did betray it. And you can imagine this sort of division that's growing, like, all the pastors sitting in a jail cell or working in a mine in somewhere in the desert are like, hold up. We remain faithful and now we're breaking rocks. Bishop so-and-so, he's still preaching every Sunday in his house, but he betrayed the faith. So the question became, and especially after persecution ended, so 311, 312, persecution's over. And now everyone's coming back to church and it's like, hold up. We got to 
deal with the people who now are coming back to church because there's no persecution. There's no reason not to come back. Do they just get to come right back in? Like, is there any sort of process? What about the pastor? Does he just walk right back into his position? And even more importantly, what's his, what's the status, spiritual status of these people? Like they renounced their faith for a time at least, or, or turned against the church. Should there be some sort of process? Should they, should they be excommunicated? Were they even saved to begin with? Um, can they preach? Can they baptize? Can they do any of these things? So that's the controversy. On the one side, you had the church. It didn't have a name. It was just the church because there was only one church. Then you have a group of people who started following a bishop. Um, and it, it, it's really North Africa where this is happening. Um, a bishop gets elected, but one of the people in his ordination council had be, had given up his copy of scripture. And so everybody in that town was like, we don't accept the ordination. Um, and this is how we know they're not Baptist because there's an ordination council that's electing a bishop over a city. And that's not Baptists don't have hierarchy like that. So what, so what do they do? This was where you could say they are Baptist. They split and they go off and they elect their own bishop. Fun fact, the name of the bishop who they didn't like was named Caecilian, which would be similar to the name Caecilius if you're a Dr. Strange fan. So Caecilius was the, uh, wasn't he the bad guy in Dr. Strange? Now we got to look it up. It's, it's been a while. Let me see. Caecilius was the bad guy. And I'm wondering if there's somebody who read a little church history who named him after that, because wasn't Caecilius a, like a, like a separatist group that yeah. left the main organization and he had his followers that they were the purest. They must've named him after Caecilius. From, the, from this controversy because the whole whole thing was there was the catholic church there was the church and what they started doing was they started letting these bishops come back in who had turned over their bibles and, and putting them back into positions of authority and so the donatists following the bishop named donatists split off as the pure church the church of the martyrs not the church of the traitors so in dr strange he's like the he's like the pure one right because she had the, the the sorcerer supreme had betrayed the faith or whatever. Anyway, nerd facts there, but I do maintain that Doctor Strange is the most spiritual and close, um, most spiritual movie of all the MCU ones. Uh, anyway, so Caecilius or Caecilian is ordained Bishop of Carthage in three eleven. So this is right at the end of the persecution. Constantine comes into power the next year. And there's no more persecutions. Donatists are like, but Christians are always persecuted. And that's how you know they're real Christians because they don't ever betray the faith. They never compromise. And this is why it's relevant to us today because our background, independent fundamental Baptist, separatism and purity is the number one concern. So the Donatists were like, we're the church of the martyrs that never compromised. So we're going to start our own church. And the Catholic Church, who lets back in people, they're the false church, they're the apostate church. Um, what's interesting about this controversy, so it's a heresy, but unlike when we think of heresy, heresy is always doctrine, right? This wasn't about doctrine. They actually agreed on all the doctrine. They agreed in the scripture. Donatists were very faithful to scripture. They maintained the death, the resurrection of Christ. Everything, all the doctrine was the same. 
So they weren't condemned for false doctrine. So they're heretics with sound doctrine, which is an interesting category because we don't really think of it. Though if you look it up in scripture, it, when it says to rebuke a divisive man or a heretic, depending on which, which version you're using, that's what heretic means, a divisive man. So the Donatists were condemned for splitting off the church and starting their own church. They had several ecumenical councils. They always lost them. Then they go to Constantine and we're like, Constantine, you tell us, you decide if we're legitimate or if the other church is legitimate, which again, not Baptist, <laughs> like appealing to the emperor for spiritual standing. How would you ever claim them as Baptist? Uh, and Constantine was like, no, you're wrong too. But so, and it kind of peered out everywhere else, but in North Africa it was strong. So by 350, there were more Donatists than there were universal church, Catholic church, regular church people. So they had maintained, and there was, there was a little bit of uh, social issues, kind of an anti-Rome feeling. So North Africa was made up of Punic and Berbers. And then the Latin from Italy came down and colonized it. And so there was a little bit of like Rome versus local. And so it was a social problem as well, but 350 is more Donatists than Catholics. And they, the Donatists called themselves Church of the Martyrs. They said, our pastors are holy and our churches are pure. And the Catholic Church, the universal church, are compromisers and they are no longer a church because they let bishops who betrayed the faith stay in. And it goes on for 100 years, this controversy, and it grew strongly. So then what... It wasn't declared a heresy until about 400 when Augustine took it on. So one of the reasons Augustine's famous is because he won most of the controversies he engaged in. So in 400, he's the bishop. He's from North Africa. He's the bishop of Hippo. And Hippo's in, in the same area. So he takes on a local guy. So it's 100 years later. He's outnumbered. And the case is which is the true church and which is the false church. And so the main argument for the Donatists was that clergy, pastors who turned over scriptures could never be pastors. And in some case, they would say couldn't be back, welcome back. They're perpetually excommunicated. Anyone that was baptized or ordained by those pastors had to be rebaptized and reordained. And... Uh, yeah, so that, that was the third one that, that they had to be rebaptized. So they believed in re, that there had to be a new baptism. And there was also like six or seven different groups of Donatists. Like any good separatist group, there were more and less pure ones. There was a large group that would run around and destroy things and beat people up and throw acid in the face of, of bishops who didn't stay faithful. So it was a pretty big, it's a pretty big deal. <laughs> So, so that was their argument. Now, what's interesting is James Beller and his book, you, he accurately quotes, he accurately understands the Donatist, but he says that that's the right way. That if your pastor is not morally sound, your baptism is invalid. And he says that's the Baptist way, which is absolutely not the Baptist way or the Christian way in general. And, he, and here's Augustine's argument. The virtue in your, bab in your baptism and your ordination comes from Christ, 
not the character of the baptizer. And in one of his arguments against the, uh, the people who were, the Donatist said, if the pastor is fallen, the baptism is not valid. So this, this is relevant in the past 100, 150 years with the landmark movement among Baptists. If you weren't baptized in a Baptist church, do you have to be baptized? Like, what if you're baptized in a Presbyterian church or an Anglican church? So there's a large Baptist movement that says only Baptist baptisms are legitimate. Uh, so here's what Augustine says. So the, so the Donatist says, for what we look to is the conscience of the giver. So the, the person who baptized or ordains you, what, is their conscience clear or did they betray the faith? And Augustine replies, we therefore need to have no anxiety about the conscience of Christ. But if you assert any man to be the giver, be he who he may, there will be no certainty about the cleansing of the recipient because there is no certainty about the conscience of the giver. And this is the Christian position. If we're depending on the pastor to have a clear conscience in order for our baptism to be valid, how would you ever know? Like, are, are you 100% sure that the person who baptized you had a clear conscience? Like, no one knows that. Nobody, like any person could turn out 10 years or not. I mean, how many times in our own movement have we're like, oh my goodness, that guy's in jail now or that guy did whatever. So Augustine says the conscience we have to worry about is the one who gave us baptism, which was Christ. So if you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Christian manner, after the manner of Christ, your baptism is valid. And if the, if the guy that dunked you under was secretly sinning or had betrayed the faith prior, that's between him and God. Baptism is still valid. It also goes against what we believe for ecclesiology. So the pastor isn't the one endowed with the power to baptize you. The church is the one and he's just representing it. Right. And so the Donatists put all the faith into the pastor who had to be pure. And Augustine says, no, Christ is pure and the church is Christ's church. And so if the church is Christian, a true church, you don't have to worry about the guy baptizing you. Though obviously you would want. It wasn't an argument about whether you should have a good pastor or not. It was about whether it was a false church if it had a bad pastor. And so the, the heresy was it's a heresy to split and begin your own, it wasn't your own denomination or own local church. It was to renounce the universal, the body of Christ, to begin your own group. There's only one body, one faith, one baptism, one spirit and God overall. And so the Donatist says, we're going to start our own. And, and so the follow-up was, the Donatist says, for he who receives faith from the faithless receives not faith, but guilt. So if your pastor betrayed the faith, sacrificed to idols, when he ordains you, you're not being ordained. You're actually being handed guilt from that pastor. And so Augustine replies, Christ is not faithless from whom the faithful man receives not, receives not guilt, but faith. For he believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, that his faith may be counted for righteousness. So you see what Augustine's like, you keep on talking about pastors. Let's talk about Jesus. Like I got my faith from Christ. And I know I'm good because I know he's good. I don't need a, a man to be faithful because I didn't get my faith from a man. And so Augustine was able to defeat them partly because of that. But the main thing that Augustine said was that Donatists 
were pride, uh, proud, full of pride. And they set themselves up as authorities. And I would agree with him that separatists to this day um, are proud. They're arrogant. And I say that from study of history and also from my own experience and seeing the leaders of separatist movements. And Donatists were pretty extreme. They actually declared the, the other church apostate. Independent Baptists don't do that. Baptists in general don't usually do that. Though you do have like the Baptist briders who say the only bride of Christ is Baptist. But most independent Baptists, will, will they won't go as far to declare an apostate Presbyterian or Southern Baptist, but they will say that they're not. They'll head down that path. And I, and I think it's it's fueled by pride that they are the pure church, not the compromising church. And part of it, okay, so to be charitable, because you can always paint people in the worst, worst way possible. The reason this started was because people suffered. They were thrown in jail. Their hands were cut off. Their families were killed. Their pastors were killed for doing what they were supposed to do, which was be faithful. Now they're watching people who did not suffer be welcomed back in. And there's this pain of like, hey, this was really tough for about 10 years and a lot of us are dead. And the rest of us, a lot of us are like permanently disabled and we're just not going to do anything. So the pain was real. The betrayal was real. Like these people were betrayed by their fellow Christians. But the schism or the separation or the separatism didn't, it wasn't the pain. Someone said it was the infection. They didn't deal with the problem and it got infected and they split off and started their own church. And the question that Augustine dealt with and that we have to deal with is what's more important, unity or purity? At what point do you leave? And this is a big question. I know I've had to wrestle with it a lot. When do you leave? And I think everyone agrees with, even the Catholics would agree with this, and certainly people like Augustine and even the Donatists would agree. If they're, teaching a, if they're teaching false doctrine, a false Christ, a false gospel, you leave. It's no longer a true church because they're teaching untrue things. And that's why we currently don't follow the Roman Catholic Church, because we don't think they're a true church. There's no unity with the Roman Catholic Church because they've left behind the gospel. So doctrine is certainly a time to split. Um, because it's no longer the body of Christ. But what if the doctrine is the same, like with the Donatist? What if it's just about consistency and lack of compromise? At what point do you leave? And Augustine against the Donatist says you'd never leave because it's the body of Christ. And I think this is where it gets really relevant. And his argument was, if you love Christians, you'll stay. Now, in our context, we're not talking about local churches. We're talking about the church. So maybe you need to leave a local church and go to another local church. And obviously with issues like abuse, that would be much more clear. Um, but in general, you don't just start your own things because you feel like you're better or more pure. There has to be unity with Christians. And Baptist, independent Baptists, are notoriously bad about separating from Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. They may not call them apostate, but they certainly won't fellowship with them. And this is what really gets me. You've seen the missionary come to your church and try to sell their product, 
and they'll say, there's not a gospel preaching church or there's not a Baptist church in this town. It's like, well, that's not the same thing. There could be a hundred gospel preaching churches and they're all Anglican. So there's a, there's this misconception and often deception that if there's not an independent Baptist church there, there's no real witness to the gospel. And that's headed down this road of the Donatist of they're not pure enough. They're not, uh, faithful enough. And it goes back to the scriptures. That's what the King James version debate was about. King James version debate was you can't change one word. So if you get a new version, even Jack Howell says, you're not even saved. You have to get saved out of the King James. And that's what the Donatist said. If you give up your Bible, you're not saved. And if you're not saved, you can't be a true church. And if your pastor has changed some word in the Bible, he's faithless and your baptism is invalid and your church is invalid and you need to leave and come join our church, which is the true church. So that's the Donatist movement. And what Augustine says was if, if your church is centered on purity, you're going to have problems because it's really about your arrogance and your pride of being better than other people. And so if it's not on purity, what is this? What is it? And he said, well, the Bible says, first of all, it's, it's on Christ um, as the, it is the body of Christ. It's not the collection of pure people. It's first, primarily the church that Christ died for. And so he quotes, he says, the whole redeemed city, that is to say the congregation or community of the saints is offered to God as our sacrifice through the great high priest who offered himself to God and his passion for us, that we might be members of this glorious head according to the form of a servant. And he goes on to quote um, 1 Corinthians 10, where when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's not about the elder or the bishop that's administering it. It's about the unity around Christ. And if it turns out that the guy that handed you the wafer was an apostate, it doesn't change the reality that this is still around Christ. So that the church is gathered around Christ and individuals come and go turn out to be apostate, never work, saved, whatever. We don't even know sometimes, but Christ is still the same. And as long as the church is gathered around Christ, it's a true, it's a true church. But then the second thing he said was if you, if the second thing it should be gathered around is love, not purity. And this is where fundamentalism gets essentially wrong because fundamentalism is centered on separation because of purity. It has always been a separatist movement. It's always been a purist movement. And it's always been wrong. The fundamentalist church has always been wrong. It's been a true church if it's gathered around Christ, but it's always been wrong because it's always been about leaving over purity and not about love. And, we, and some people are like, well, let's go back to the beginning of the, of this, of the movement in the 20s. Yes, it was still a divided separatist movement because they wouldn't let black people in. It was founded on explicitly saying there's a white church and there's a black church. The leaders explicitly said that. That is a heresy. That's what the Donatists said. You have to have the right kind of people in your church. So the fundamentalist movement was founded on the purist, the white supremacy, purism. And our listeners would be like, oh, how do you know that? Well, it's read them. Read their own words. Read John R. Rice say that black people shouldn't go to white churches. Read Machen, uh, one of the first fundamentalists, and he was a Presbyterian, talk about how black people weren't as good as white people. 
read T.T. Shields, who, who started the movement in 1919, explicitly refused Baptist members. J. Frank Norris, open racist. W.B. Uh, Riley, they wouldn't baptize black people into their churches. So that's a separatist movement. That's a schism. That's how fundamentalism was founded. And then it goes on to separate from everybody else because no one's ever pure enough and they continue to separate. And so now we're in a fundamentalist movement. And I don't, I don't just refer to independent Baptists, but also Southern Baptists and Southern Presbyterians, pretty much any of this fundamentalist style of church. They keep on splitting. So it used to be all fundamentalists, and then it was independent Baptists, and then it was Southern Presbyterians, and it was PCUSA, and then it was OPC, and then it was sort of the Lord, and then it was Hiles, and just continually divides, divides, divides. And I've said this for a while, and learning more and more, fundamentalism is not centered around love. It's centered around power. It's centered around people having what they think is right and having their way. The Donatists did it. And at that time, Augustine and others saw through it and saw it as an arrogant power grab um, based on their purity. And he said, instead, we should love people. And he has a quote. He, he did a sermon on 1 John. He said, where, where it says that if any man says he loves his brother or loves God but doesn't love his brother, he's a liar. The truth is not in him. He said, he that hates his brother walks in darkness. Actually, let me read the. Let me read the scripture he's quoting. Uh, so it's 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So in the sermon against the Dantes, he applies it. He says, he that hates his brother walks in darkness and knows not where he goes. For us then, let us see what follows and not be in darkness. How do, we, so how do we not be like the Donatists? How should we not be in darkness if we love the brethren? How is it proved that we love the brotherhood? By this, that we do not rend unity, that we hold fast charity. That was his main case. The Donatists are, is, a, is a false church, a heretical church, because they don't love people. And if you don't love people, you're not a Christian. You can be right, but the core of Christianity is not being right. It's about love. Love God, love your neighbor. We love him because he first loved us. And so the Donatists and many independent Baptists, I'm not saying independent Baptists aren't saved, but I do think that the movement is corrupted. It is corrupt because it's built on power and not love. And that's why it's constantly struggling and constantly abusing people and constantly splitting and constantly producing arrogant leaders. Um, and shallow Christians. And so um, Augustine goes on talking about, he says, because he that loves his brother bears all things for unity's sake, because it is in the unity of love that brotherly love exists. And this is good. Someone, I know not who, offends you. They use the wrong Bible. They listen to the wrong music. They have the wrong view of the millennium. Whether it be a bad man, or as you suppose a bad man, or as you pretend a bad man, do you desert so many good men? What sort of brotherly love it is that is that which has appeared in these persons? While they accuse the Africans, because they were in Africa, they have deserted the whole world. What, were there no saints in the whole world? Or was it possible they should be condemned by you unheard? But oh, if you love the brethren, 
you there would be none occasion of stumbling in you. When you go to an independent Baptist church, you are taught, whether explicitly or implicitly, that there's no other good churches around in, in the world. The true church is here in America, an independent Baptist church. And if, if you want to go to a good church in Russia, Africa, South America, you have to go either plant an independent Baptist church or find one that's there. And Augustine is like, really? You're the only Christians in the world? Like, you got mad at one person because he said the wrong doctrine, and suddenly everyone's wrong except for you? So the heresy of the Donatist is not doctrinal. It's practical. So it's not orthodoxy, which is right belief. It's orthopraxy, which is right practice. And fundamentalists have no place for love in their theology. That's not true. They have a place for it. It's just further down the list. And that means that you can be a arrogant, unloving person in fundamentalism and be a leader, whether that be Southern Baptist, independent Baptist, Presbyterian. And I know because I've met them <laughs> and I've listened to them. You do have to pay lip service to love, you know. I'll oh, yeah, sure. You'll I love you. Words yeah. You know, I love you. That's why I'm publicly abusing you. Yeah. yeah, and and this is yeah, this is a discernment issue. This isn't just check the boxes of the right things to say. Again, that goes back to right beliefs. They'll say the right things, but if any man says he loves God but does not does not love his brother, the truth is not in him. He walks in darkness. And fundamentalism cultivates separate separatism. It cultivates it. It was built on it. It perpetuates it. it encourages it. it. It is the way. True Christianity cultivates unity and love. It doesn't mean you never separate, nothing, nothing ever changes, but the, the drive, the urge, is because you love other Christians, you'll do as much as you can to be in union with them. And if you have to leave church because they don't baptize the way the Bible says you think they should, or they don't have the right leadership, you'll still fellowship with them. Just because they're a Methodist church doesn't mean they're not your Christian brothers and sisters. Just because they have a woman pastor does not mean that they are not part of the body of Christ faithfully serving him. Love believes all things, hopes all things, um, does not create deception, does not create division. So what the Donatists teach us, one thing is that the more things change, the more things stay the same. And secondly, that it's a heresy to divide over purity at the expense of love. And first John is very clear about that, but the whole Bible's clear about that. What is the great command? As you love God and love your neighbor, how shall all men know you that you love one another? Independent Baptists are not known as Christians because they love one another. The Donatists were not known for it. Um, and this is a long history that, that goes past our movement to, to a reoccurring problem. And so what we need to do is go back and, and do what Augustine did. He says, you keep on talking about people. We need to talk about Jesus. Because people are perpetually messing up. But if the church was built on people, then we're all going to go do our own thing. But if the church is built on Christ, then we're good. And if we love one another, we'll pretty much be unified through a lot of bad stuff. And it recenters the church and the Christian life on the person of Christ and the ethic of love. And decenters purity. Because purity is an illusion. 
for Christians. You can ne- you'll never be pure the side of heaven. So if you're maintaining purity, you're going to either be a hypocrite, arrogant, or unconcerned with the truth. Or you have to control people. Anyway, that's the Donatist controversy. And that's why you study history, so we can try to avoid repeating the same mistakes. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcast.historyhome.com or message us on Twitter at History Hope. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app of your choice. 